Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Thank you, guys. For listening to KickServeRadio.com on Tennis Channel Podcast Network, uh, our team is comprised of the great Mats Vlander, seven-time major champion. Uh, Mats, in 1988, you and I had sort of parallel careers. You won three majors, and I won three of the biggest tournaments in Lubbock, Texas, at the time. And I think that's why we've we've come together for this show. How you doing out there in Idaho? We're doing great. Um, we're going towards springtime here. Um, Obviously, we had a couple of really big storms, and, and now, uh, sort of early March, we're at 45 to 50 degrees. Golf courses are open about an hour south of Sun Valley. So you could have that perfect day, Andy, that I know you would look forward to, which would be ski in the morning, take an hour drive, and play 18 holes of golf in the afternoon. But that's just Idaho, lifestyles of, the, of Idaho, Sun Valley. No, for sure. That would be a perfect day for me to know that you skied and then played golf that day while I was teaching tennis, so. And then Johnny Levine, our two-time Longhorn All-American, will be joining us a little bit later in the show. But as we mentioned, we are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And a large reason for that is because of our guest today, and that is Tennis Channel Senior VP David Egdis, who has spent much of his career in tennis. He was with World Team Tennis for a few years. He was with IMG for about five years. But he has been with Tennis Channel for David, going on two decades now at this point, how are you doing? I'm doing great, guys. It's really good uh, to hear you and see you. Um, but yes, I have been at Tennis Channel. We launched in 2003. I joined in 2006 and have been with the network as we've grown from uh, being in a few million homes to now being in uh, more than almost 60 million homes. Well, I know that when you and I had talked about the possibility of kickserveradio.com coming on to become part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, you begrudgingly agreed to do it, even though Matt Spielander had to come along for the ride. But I want to tell you how much I appreciate you giving him a break and giving him this opportunity. And I know he, he wants to make the most of it. So, Thank you, Andy. Um, so David. <laughs> we know that Matt was looking for all kinds of opportunities and we had to throw a bone to him somehow. Yeah, so this was, this was a you, small David. little bone that we had to throw to Matt, given his lack of credentials. David, a year ago at the time that we're recording now, we were just getting the disappointing news that Indian Wells would be canceled, the BNP Paribas Open, that is, and that the entire tour would be in jeopardy. And as it would turn out, much of the tour uh, did get canceled for the better part of the spring. The French Open got moved to the fall. The U.S. Open was played without fans. There was no Wimbledon. Talk about the effect that 2020 had on tennis channel before we move forward and hopefully look to to brighter days like 2021 listen i mean andy we were we were all in uh, indian wells when this happened right it was a sunday morning i was driving down and we got the news that the tournament was canceling and i think everyone was questioning at the time it was probably the smartest decision that was made by 
Larry Ellison and the team, given what they knew at the time, we were all out there. We were ready to start, you know, broadcasting. It was obviously um, shocking for everybody. Obviously, the NBA stopped playing a couple of days later. And, you know, nobody really knew what was going on at the time. It was all, you know, there was a lot of tremendous fear and concern and, and justifiably so because it was all, you know, the unknown right, right then. I mean, we were talking to players from, you know, from our, some of our Asian, you know, guys, and they were saying that, you know, this was really coming and we had to be so, so careful. And while that was happening, Tennis Channel, we pivoted to to start, you know, broadcasting some of our other events. We went, We ran a bunch of, you know, our Grand Slams, our previous Indian Wells, the week of Indian Wells, we reran that. And then the minute, you know, tennis started up again in the early summer, late, you know, late spring, we pivoted and we started showing all the exhibitions. That was, you know, it was a major, major redoing of the whole schedule. We had our schedule mapped out for, you know, through the whole summer and everything. And this was, you know, we had to change the whole network. So it was a big, big, big deal. But um, we actually came away from it and, and, and everything turned out to be all right. David, there was talk that, you know, tennis, obviously with the social distancing that is possible in tennis, because even if you play doubles, you're kind of more than six feet away from one another. I still run clinics uh, at my uh, club, uh, Gravity. Let me throw that in, Andy. Gravity. Sure. sure but it, only three people plus me is four on court. We know that golf, golf has gone through the roof. People are playing golf like crazy. So, Keep that in mind. People are playing more tennis maybe than ever. Does that affect you guys, David, in terms of how many people watch tennis? Or how do you eat 60 million homes have the tennis channel? Uh, and, and how many players, uh, how many people watch the tennis channel that don't play tennis, so to speak? Give us some numbers. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't have the numbers right in, you know, right in front of me, but, but the, the interesting thing is that we have more people that that play tennis, they'd also watch tennis. For example, compare it to NBA TV or NFL network or, you know, the other sports, you know, the the other, you know, single sport networks in in America. We have got the highest ratio of of players versus, um, you know, people watching in any other. Probably us in golf are very closely aligned. But what we can, you know, but we do know is that Obviously, during the pandemic, the tennis was just, you know, doing really, really well as a sport in general, because people view this as a, you know, socially distant sport that can be played safely. And people have been playing from, you know, literally from, you know, everyone, everyone went into lockdown in March. But by the time they were people were allowed to come out and play in, you know, end of April, beginning of May, that was one of the first things that people were doing. I think ratings generally have been down, you know, across the board for all, you know, a lot of the sports, um, you know, especially last year with the political situation that was going on, people will, people, you know, people were very tuned to CNN and Fox and everything else on, but for, from a single sport network, you know, we were doing great. And this year, you know, we had our highest rated February, some of the Australian open content, the, the ratings have been excellent. And so we're on a very, very good track moving forward right now. I had an opportunity to, to, to ask Roger Federer a couple of questions at, at the uh, pressers at Indian Wells. Neither one of them went over very well with Roger. And the first one that didn't go over well with him was when I said to Roger, do you fear that when you and Rafa and Novak ride off into the sunset, that there will be a void in the sport that will, the, the sport will really take a hit in popularity. 
Um, we haven't gotten there yet, so we don't know. But we have gotten to the point where Mike and, and Bob are gone now. And so I'm tuning into doubles matches. And I do try to watch Tennis Channel. And you try to keep up with what's going on out there. But I find that a lot of times, a lot of the matches that I'm watching on the double side, even if it's a, a major final, I don't know all the players like there are there are people making it to the to the finals of a major championship, whether it be the men's or the women's. And I've never heard of one of the teams. You know, usually I've heard of one or the other, but not sometimes both. Are, are you finding that you've got some concern with where the popularity of doubles is and showing it on television? Listen, I mean, you know, the thing is that the Bryan brothers were such a, a, a phenom. It was such an incredible treat to watch them and to have them on the tour, not only on the court, but off the court, the way they conducted themselves and the way they gave back to tennis in every single way. So, you know, it's difficult to, you know, duplicate that and get another team that can do what they did. It, it's a huge loss for the sport. Um, you know, we're now, we just are moving on and we have to now educate, you know, our viewers on the next great teams that are coming along. I mean, we, we'd like to televise more doubles. I know from a viewership standpoint, sometimes it gets very popular. Sometimes it's mediocre, but you know, it's just it's it's a matter of just trying to do whatever you can to promote the sport. And I think if we can keep keep promoting it and talking about how gifted these guys are. I mean, I was watching even I was watching Stefanos Tsitsipas and his brother playing last week in the doubles match, and it was it was you know fun and exciting you know match to watch. Even though they lost, they they ended up losing the match. Getting to your other question about you know Roger Rafa Novak, I think you know we had these conversations when John and Jimmy and Mats and all of them. We're retiring and then Pete and Andre came along and then when Pete and Andre were coming up we're like what are we going to do now you know this is this is the end of a generation and you know next thing Roger Rafa came along and you know it's been a treat for the last you know 17 years and you know hopefully these younger guys have learned from them these you know the guys like Sinner and Felix and you know Taylor Fritz and you know all these young guys that are that are, that are coming up you know hopefully they'll be able to do some stuff too but you've got guys like Kyrgios, who are box office in a different way now, right? People are tuning in to watch Kyrgios, you know, for, for different reasons, but he's, he's, you know, moving a lot of eyeballs and he's driving a lot of tuning. So, you know, I think we're in very good shape. Are we going to have Roger Rafa Novak? No, but we, but, you know, when they were starting out, we didn't know what we were going to have either. So we'll only be able to know 10 years from now exactly how this turned out. That brings me, um, for both of you guys, brings me to, my, to a question I always wanted to ask. We always talk about that. That every generation we talk about, oh, the previous generation that had more personalities in the game. There was more when McEnroe and Connors and then Agassi and, and on and on. And now because of the uh, COVID uh, situation, we don't have line umpires on the court anymore. So somebody like a Nick Curios kind of disappears a little bit because he can't have that interaction with the umpire. He can't challenge for Hawkeye, should I challenge now and the crowd with no line umpires? I mean, are you in the business of the tennis channel? Are you, first of all, do they ask you guys what you think of not having line umpires going forwards? Because it does uh, uh, look a little dead, may I say. And there's no arguments between the players and the umpires. Is that good or is that bad? Where do you stand and where do you think the, the, the TV fan, what do they want to see? Do they want to see Nick Kyrgios go nuts at the umpire or what, what are we looking for? Listen, I, you know, I think it's, that's a really interesting conversation. And, and those are conversations that were had with the players. You know, I was on the board, on the ATP board, and, and, and these were conversations that were, that were being had with, with the players, you know, in terms of 
phasing out the the, the, the line owned empires and, and and there was there was a mixed you know there was a mixed feeling among the guys first it was you know it's okay to do it on hard courts it's okay we're just talking about Hawkeye at first and then they were talking about possibly including Hawkeye on clay courts is that is that okay? should you do it on clay or not do it on clay and then now with you know obviously with COVID it's been you know just the the electronic line calling I think it kind of dulls it up a little bit personally I would much rather see you know, the interaction with the, the line person and, and be able to see someone challenging a call and see the reaction of the crowd and whatnot. I think it hurts the actual, the line calling, the, the, the industry, because what you, you, you still want to, you're still going to have at the majors, you still want to have, you know, at, at, at Wimbledon, US Open, at the Masters Series, you still want to have people on the court calling the matches. I'm, I personally think so. And this way you need, you need to be able to train these guys at some level, so whether you're training them at the challenges, at the 250s, at the 500s, so that they, so that when it's time to go umpire or, or be a linesman at a, at a thousand or at a Grand Slam, they're ready to do so and they're ready to step up. And so I think that it, as as much as it's, it's it's great and the technology is good and using technology is a great thing, I still think from an entertainment standpoint, I would rather have the lines people on the court there, and from a job standpoint, to keep the industry going. You're listening to kickserveradio.com, and we are part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network and very proud to be so. We're talking to Tennis Channel Senior VP David Egdis today. And, David, I want to change gears. I want to make sure that people know your story a little bit better because when you and I first crossed paths, I was just a little, you know, uh, walk-on, a little grunt walk-on at the University of Texas while you're the number one player in the country at Trinity University, and I remember you having some good battles with our third co-host, Johnny Levine, back in those days uh, when, he, when he was also at Texas. But people don't, don't know that your you know, potential pro career was, was cut short by a pretty serious, if memory serves, back injury. Take us back to those days and, and what did happen, maybe what, what should or could have happened with your pro career. And listen, I'm you know being on the being on the phone with Mats is like embarrassing to talk about your college career. <laughs> so it's, it's you know it's well, it shouldn't be embarrassing to talk to me about it. I assure you. No, I mean I you know I grew up in South Africa and I was a, I was a decent player in the juniors. I played you know all the Orange Bowl and and you know those, those tournaments. I played the, the the junior circuit you know from 16, 17, 18, and I came to the states on a scholarship. And I you know was having a pretty good college career. I was. All American. I was, you know, best one of the best players on my team, and then had a really, really bad back injury. Um, and um, I would, I would have tried to turn. I would have tried to play on the tour, but I had a career-ending back injury. Had a back surgery, and um, but you know, I was I was lucky that I was able to transition. I went to law school. I became a lawyer. Then um, I moved out to California, and uh, I was able to get back into the sports business. So. My tennis career was fun. I had a—I wouldn't say it was a career. It was—I played junior and college tennis, and um, it gave me a, a life in tennis, which is, I'm incredibly, incredibly thankful of and appreciative of. So now, we, getting back to, to to the current day, and we started with, you know, lamenting what 2020 looked like. Although I think we all made the best of it. So now we're in 2021, and. People are asking questions. Hey, Andy, uh, I hear at the club, you know, what's, what's going on with Indian Wells? Miami's on, but, you know, Indian Wells is off. Is there a chance they'll have Indian Wells later in the year? It seems like there's a nice gap for it in October. Like, what is the schedule going to look like compared to a normal year as far as what you know and, and, uh, and what you think may happen? Listen, it's, it's, it's really interesting right now. I think that, you know, as 
hopefully, you know, we, with more people getting vaccinated with, you know, with, 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 with us hopefully being able to get the virus under some type of a control, hopefully, you know, things will be a little bit different at the end of the summer. Um, but I don't have a crystal ball and, and people want answers right now. And it's not that diff- it's not, it's not that easy to give because there's just a lot of variables that have to be taken into account before decisions can be made. I've always wanted to ask this question, Andy, to somebody that knows the business uh, and knows the game. And David, you're the perfect person uh, to ask this question. In the 80s, the Grand Slam finals were shown on, uh, in America, they were shown on NBC. In Sweden, when I played, they were shown on, shown on Swedish television one, Swedish television two. Everyone could see the, the Grand Slam tournaments on a regular TV. You don't need some kind of cable, uh, cable uh, contract or satellite dish or anything. Uh, and in America, it was the same thing. So I think that the players in the, in the sort of the 70s and 80s, they were more well-known to the taxi driver in New York City than they are today. I bet you go ask a taxi driver in New York City who Nick Curious is, he has no idea. And you can most probably go down the line to the t- five or six player in the world, and they have no idea. So Tennis Channel comes in, and now we have a place where if you're a tennis fan, you can really go and get your fill, and you can watch 24 hours a day. But what is the risk uh, when we specialize as much as uh, the world is doing in, in terms of the, your channel and social media, whatever, where, where we don't uh, push tennis onto the global population or, or to people that they literally don't know what tennis is until they see it the first time? Yeah, so much. I mean, that's obviously an interesting question. I think, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things. I think if you go back to the 70s and 80s, and yes, you know, that's how I grew up, you know, there were only two or three channels at the time, right, back, you know, back, back in those days. And that, and that was, you know, you'd get network and you'd, you'd, you'd probably get, you know, you'd have the Grand Slam finals and, you, you know, maybe the semifinals and quarterfinals on network television, but the rest of it wouldn't be seen at all. So things, obviously things have changed. Now with the growth of cable, you know, with, with us, we're showing more tennis than, than has ever been shown in the history of the sport. Is it being seen by as many people? There may not be more people. There may not might be 45 million people watching a tennis match right now, like, you know, perhaps you, when you had the Battle of the Sexes with Billie Jean. But you've still got people that are tuning in regularly all the time on a week-to-week basis, and, they've been, and they've been, they're, they're able to watch the matches and see the matches. I think we had more live coverage of tennis, of tennis on Tennis Channel than any other single sport network or any other network in the last several years. So, you know, the, the concept of it moving off network onto cable, that's just been a progression of, you know, all sports. I mean, you know, the NBA is on TNT now, the NBA, you know, it's on ABC some, football, basketball, it's, it's all moving, you know, towards to some of the single sports networks. And it's been, it's one of the, one of the toughest things with tennis has been scheduling tennis for television because, you know, television is used to scheduling and you know this from your work with Eurosport scheduling television is used to scheduling in hours. We'll give you a two hour block from four to six on Monday afternoon. And, you know, with tennis, you know, when you're playing a tournament, you have no idea if a match is going to be over in 40 minutes, if it's going to be over in two hours and 40 minutes. And that's always been a scheduling problem for networks is tennis is incredibly, incredibly challenging to schedule. But in terms of trying to bring in a casual viewer, we're, we're doing everything we can from a marketing standpoint. We're trying to 
you know, do some off-channel marketing. We're doing things with um, different partners around to, to bring awareness to and encouraging people to come watch us. David, thanks for bringing that up. I feel really guilty about that because I was one of the people, obviously, that was maybe the hardest to schedule because I could play <laughs> a singles match against not a very famous guy for five hours. Or John McEnroe for six hours. Six hours. I have two matches that are worth six hours. That's a record that could maybe still stand. So I definitely get it. Yes, no. I think it's just great. I'm going to say this and end it. I'm going to give it a hand it over to you. I think it's fantastic that uh, you might once in a while uh, have a player that transcends the sport, uh, the, the tennis as a sport, and you might have a person that picks up a racket that would never have picked it up otherwise. But I love that you can pursue your passion now with the tennis channel because you can fo- I can follow everything. And I think if you just find tennis in your life and you find some kind of liking to it, there is nothing stopping you from fulfilling your potential, whether that's, uh, uh, you know, commentating or playing or just pursuing it on an amateur level or a junior level, whatever it is. And that's thanks to the tennis chair. So no, I think it's brilliant what you guys have done. And I, and I, I, I think it's much better, uh, but uh, the scheduling conflict, that's another conversation that we need to have one day too. What are you going to do about tennis? How do we, how do we make two hour matches? I don't know. Andy, do you have a suggestion for David? Cause we need two hour matches, not three, not one. Well, anybody that plays me a singles matches is going to get out of there pretty quick. So that would be a good start. But I think what they've started to do with the doubles formats and the no ad scoring and the 10 point tiebreakers and some of those things that, some people feel cheated out of seeing some of the matches that are a little bit more old school types. I think it's great. I think, I think that makes it exciting. I like the no ad points. I like, you know, people being kept on their toes. I like the 10 point tiebreaker before we let you go, David, real quickly, just uh, we always like to put people on the spot for an occasional prediction. And I'm going to ask you this, who's got a better chance of accomplishing the following uh, Novak Djokovic of tying Rafa and Roger this year, or Serena Williams tying Margaret Court? I think Novak. Do you think he's got a better chance of winning two than than Serena does of winning one? Yeah, I just, you know, I mean, I'd love to see Serena do do it. It just, you know, I, I mean, this is not a bet against Serena. This is a bet on Novak. Right. I think, I think, you know, I think Novak just, you know, just playing so well and doing what he's doing and he just take it to another level. I think, I think he has a good chance to win two more slams this year. Well, one thing we can bet on is that if either of those happens, Tennis Channel will be there to give us the lowdown on it and give it to us in uh, in very polished, very professional fashion. And David, we appreciate all the great work that you've done just in the tennis industry as a whole. Your work with World Team Tennis, your work with IMG as an agent. I know you helped a lot of young players along in their career. And now what you've done for Tennis Channel has made uh, life a lot better for, for all tennis fans. So uh, I know I speak for Matt's and Johnny and myself when we thank you for joining us and allowing us to be a, uh, a small part of the Tennis Channel family, the Tennis Channel podcast network with, with kickserveradio.com. So hopefully we haven't been a huge disappointment to you yet. Guys, thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, we listen to you every week. So it's, it's, fun. it's fun to see how you've progressed and what you guys are doing. And uh, we will see you um, hopefully on the road soon. When we come back, more with the great Matt Svelander will be joined by Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. We're answering some of the big questions that are going to be asked for the balance of 2021. 
Some have been answered at the Australian Open, but there's much more to come this year, and we've got it for you. So don't go away. Back with more KickServeRadio.com right after this. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There are so many new communication platforms and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media, but why Squad Pod? Squad Pod was built on privacy. So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the tuchus, and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So we're used a lot, and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids being kids, but also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players. So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by Squad Pod. Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with Squad Pod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team. Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. And welcome back, everybody. Segment number two, kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Thanks again to Tennis Channel Senior VP David Eggis for joining us. And Matt's Vlander, Johnny Levine. Johnny joins us now. Uh, but, Matt, let's start with you. David had some very interesting things to say about how crazy 2020 was and hopefully how much better 2021 will be. But he really wasn't able to voice a tremendous amount of certainty. Are you getting anything more definitive on your end from Eurosport with regard to what your schedule is going to look like, or is it just a big waiting game? Andy, it's a big waiting game for sure. Um, I mean, we already know for certain that we we are not going to the French Open uh, uh, to do a Eurosport studio there. We're going to do uh, do our TV studio from from London again, so we're not on site. I would think that the Tennis Channel is kind of uh, having the same kind of issues. Uh, I feel like some of the TV stations uh, are also figuring out that, hold on, if we are doing this from off-site, we're cutting down on expenses big time. Uh, we don't need to send a big production team, and suddenly that becomes... Uh, financially more feasible for for these sort of out of the country TV channels and and 
that's, I think, is a little bit of a problem for a, a lot of people like me that like to go to the majors for obvious reasons, but now we're not able to. So I think no one really knows. And I feel like Eurosport, and it sounded like on David Edgars as well, that, that 2021 even is up in the air in terms of sending a full team uh, of, uh, of uh, producers and directors and talents to, to these places because you really – until the very last day, you don't really know if this thing is going to flare up again and then suddenly you're going to have to cancel everything. So I think they're taking the safer route and staying away until it's 100% safe to go to these places. All right. Well, we do bring in the third member of our team, and that's Johnny Levine. And hopefully uh, he's finished eating whatever you were eating, Johnny, so that we can talk to you a little bit. But one of the announcements that was made uh, in the last few days was that of Roger Federer. And most of the time, athletes don't come out with statements saying that they're not going to retire, but that, but that they are going to retire. And in fact, Roger has come out and done just the opposite to sort of put people, I think, in a place where they can comfortably expect to be able to see this guy play tennis for a while. Were you surprised to see him feel like he needed to come out and say, no, I'm, I'm not retiring anytime soon? I'm sure he watches the tweets and listens to the media and people have been talking about it the last six months because they haven't seen him. And, and, and people like to create stories and, and what, wondering if Federer is going to come back. So I think he just wanted to put everyone's mind to rest and he loves tennis too much to quit. And, and I think that he's had a lot of, you know, time off to heal. And so I, I expect him to play well and do well. And, you know, whether he can win these tournaments is another story, but I think he'll be a contender for sure. Kind of interesting, Matt's the way some of these announcements are timed based on other things that are happening in the immediate sphere of, of these athletes' universes. And in this case, Novak Djokovic breaks the all-time record for weeks at number one, and suddenly Roger comes out and says, well, I'm, I'm still playing, by the way. So don't get, so, don't get carried away there, Joker. And uh, did you find that to sort of interesting? Um, yeah, I mean, I do. I think um... – you know, I've read a couple of articles today, actually, about Roger's comeback here uh, this week. I'm assuming he's playing on Wednesday or Thursday. And, and there was this one journalist that started writing that, well, Rafa is on 20 and he could win another one. And Novak uh, exactly broke the, the weeks at number one and he could potentially. But hold on a second. When we're talking about the GOAT, Roger Federer is the GOAT, and they're going away from saying he's won the most, even though he still has. Now it's starting to become, well, he's the most pleasurable, enjoyable, uh, graceful tennis player that we've ever had. And, and that's where I actually lie as well. I really don't think that we can ever compare Rafa Nadal or Novak Djokovic with Roger Federer because of the way he plays, the way he's on court, the easy going um, off the court and press conference and uh, the, the ambassador that he is for our game. So he can still play at, at the best level in the world. He can still win tournaments. Can he win slams over five sets? Most probably not. But can he beat Novak or Rafa on a grass court in a fourth round of quarters? Absolutely, yes. Therefore, he can stop their, uh, their run of winning Grand Slam tournaments. And just speaking of, of, of the record for weeks at number one, now held by Novak Djokovic, on the other end of the spectrum, aren't you able to make a run at some sort of a record for weeks at number one as well, Matt? Um, in what way are you saying that, Andy? I'm not really sure. I was number one in the world for 20 weeks. Okay. 
Yeah. And my record while number one was five and oh in the first tournament I played. And I won two more matches. So I think I was six wins and five losses as number one in the world. I bet you that's a record. That's that's that was what I was getting at. All right, Johnny, you brought to our attention that Daniil Medvedev is now the number two player in the world. So that's got to upset some sort of weeks in a row of at least two of the three of the big three being in the top two. And now for now Medvedev is suddenly in and amongst the top two. What are the numbers on that? Medvedev cracking um, the number two ranking is now. I believe a record in the last 15 years. I don't think a player outside of Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal have been outside of the top two in the world. So, would Andy Murray potentially have cracked the top? And and Murray, you got to put Murray in there. But I don't think there's a player outside of those guys that has been uh, one or two in the world in the last 15 years. So um, Medvedev now takes the number two spot, which is which is huge. And I know that he'd rather have a slam than be number two in the world, but he very well could this year. I mean, he's playing credible tennis and uh, it's, it's kind of neat. I'm sure, I'm sure you're excited, Matt, to see uh, a new face at number two in the world outside of these top four guys that we're used to seeing for all these years. I am excited, but it brings up an interesting point here when we bring up Andy Murray, because obviously uh, in the last Grand Slam at the, at the French Open, I went out and said that I thought Andy Murray didn't look that fired up against Stamarinka. Should he have taken the wild card there, even though he didn't seem to be ready? Now he's come to his senses, I think, and he's gone down and played challengers, and he got to a finals of a challenger, so he managed to win four matches there. Is Roger Federer going to go down and play challengers just to gain some confidence? And does he have to, or can he find some kind of confidence, even if he he plays tournaments and he doesn't win many matches? Is that good enough? Or what do you think, Andy? Should Roger Federer go down and gain confidence by winning a couple of challengers? Because he needs to win matches to be a threat to the locker room. I don't think he needs to, but if you thought about whether or not he would, my suspicion is that Roger Federer's ego would not stand in the way of him doing that. And that it might be one of those things where he would consider it almost a contribution to the sport and to the other pros to say, look, I'm, I'm not considering myself to be any better than you guys. But at the same time, I would, I would suspect that the reaction to that might be pretty similar as to maybe when either Andre went and did it when he had sunk to the level that he did, which Roger has never done. He's not 141 in the world. But what about Michael Jordan playing AAA baseball and showing up in these little rinky-dink baseball uh, stadiums where these guys just couldn't even believe who they were looking at? I think that would be really cool if he did it. Will he do it? I don't know that his ranking has dropped enough. And with the protected rankings, and certainly you would know more about that than than I I would, but I think it would be really cool. But I, I just don't know if it if it's something that the rest of his team would buy into. Yeah. I wonder if it would help him to get that confidence because it clearly will help Andy Murray, who has to fight for every single point, whether he fights against somebody who's ranked 200 or somebody who's ranked 10. Uh, Whereas I guess Roger Federer sort of takes the racket out of his opponent's hand at any level when he plays well. So uh, be interesting. You know who the happiest tournament director in the world is right now, though I would have to say it's most probably the summer Olympics 
tennis tournament in Tokyo, I mean, they have to be over the moon because I would say, obviously, Roger Federer is going to try and play the Olympics because that's the only gold medal uh, that he hasn't won is the Olympics. In singles. Right. Singles. Singles. He's got the doubles. Wow, look at Johnny. Look at Johnny chiming in. Well, I say that because when you, you know, you can't say that Mats doesn't have a Wimbledon, people think of singles, but he's a Wimbledon champion. I always say that because I think that's a big thing. He's actually won all four slams. That is a big thing. But who's counting doubles, Johnny? I am for you because you've won all four. That's how Johnny got his final eight tickets to the U.S. Open was through doubles. So he's got to create a sense of importance there. So, Johnny, speaking of what Matt had asked me about, which is Roger going back and playing, um, you know, in the challenger circuit. I mean, maybe had it not been for the fact that having taken six months off at the end of 2016, only to walk right in and win the Australian Open, maybe maybe that and and win Wimbledon that year as well. So he wins two majors coming off the six month layoff maybe this whole layoff thing doesn't seem that big a deal to him since a part of the layoff was because it was a COVID year. So he didn't lose as much ground on the tour as he would have otherwise. Do you think that he just steps right in and uses a Doha like it's a challenger for him? And then uh, just obviously gets prepared, skips the clay court season and he's ready to go into grass and then Wimbledon. I, I thought I heard that he was going to play the French. Mats, did you hear that? It, it oh. seemed, I, I think I think okay. I did hear that because he just wants to play. You know, I think there, that that he will be able to come right back if I'm going to say one thing that could stop it. And and you know, Father Time, you just don't know when it's going to catch it. And we're we're going to see him back. It's all going to be about the movement. Can he hang with these guys? They they keep hitting harder and harder, and that's one of the greatest things I've seen in Roger Federer over, you know, the 20 plus year career is how he's improved his game to stay up with the competition that gets better and better every year. And now the question really becomes, you know, he has the game, but does he have the, the speed, the conditioning? Um, is that going to catch up with him? If he's, if, if that hasn't got him yet, then he's going to be right there. And, and you can't count him out. I think he's just going to be super energized because of all the time off, like you said, he did it that last time when he came back and won the Australian. It was interesting to see team come out and say he's so excited to have Roger come back because he just absolutely loves watching him play. And when you think of, you know, guys in the top five that are saying that about you, I mean, I know he's not the only one. Everyone just loves watching this guy play tennis. It's 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 just so there's never been anything like it, how he, how he handles that racket. And so I just think it's going to be fun to watch him and I'm sure he's going to have some good results. So obviously we've been talking a lot about the, 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 the race on the men's side with Novak and Roger and Rafa. Uh, and sometimes we even forget about the Serena Williams race that she is in. But uh, I, I, I was thinking the other day that what did Roger Federer do in 2017 when he came back when he had switched rackets to a bigger racket True. which he said himself it was harder to hit slice backhands so he started coming over backhands he started staying close to the baseline he even invented the uh uh whatever the sudden saber yeah the saber uh he invented that supposedly so he reinvented himself and he invented a kind of a new game Look at Serena now. I know she's three years older today than Roger was in 2017. But do we see any kind of uh, a new invention by Serena 
How is she going to stay ahead of the game? Or is she doing something now that she wasn't doing 10 years ago? Because it's obvious, like Johnny is saying, we're going to move worse and worse and worse the older we get in general. Uh, and I don't, with Serena, I'm a little worried. Is she, has she done anything that's slightly different? Is she taking the ball earlier? Is she hitting the ball harder? She's not coming to the net more. She's not hitting slice backhand. But what could she do? Andy, question goes to you. What would you like to, to see Serena do to stay uh, uh, with Naomi Osaka? Because those guys are improving every year. And I'm not sure Serena can improve. Can she change something within her ability, do you think? I have an answer to that, and I'll have it right after the break. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And I know you're all going to be waiting with bated breath to hear my answer as to what Serena Williams can do to turn back the hands of time and keep up with the Naomi Osaka's of the world on the women's tour. Don't go away. Answers to that and a lot more when we come back. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt's V-Lander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with mats, Every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody. Final segment, kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Andy Zoden, joined by seven-time major winner, three-time Australian, three-time French, one-time U.S. Open champion, and as Johnny Levine pointed out earlier, one-time Wimbledon doubles champion, Mats Vlander, as well as two-time All-American from the University of Texas, Johnny Levine, who he himself, a quarter-finalist at the French and the U.S. Open both in 1989. And the question, guys, was what can Serena Williams do to sort of turn back the hands of time, do what she needs to do to potentially tie Margaret Court this year based on what we saw in the Australian and the way she kind of got bullied against Naomi Osaka. It's starting to look less and less likely that Margaret Court's record is in jeopardy. But here's my answer. I just saw an article where Michaela Schifrin was talking about being inspired by French Open champion Iga Swiatek, And maybe it's a matter of taking a page 
from the playbook of another athlete from another sport for Serena Williams to figure out whether it's a training program or some sort of a mindset. Tom Brady has done something to continue to stay current and stay modern and stay relevant and stay elite. All right, so there's a way to do that. Maybe since Serena has reached the pinnacle of this sport and gone to the top of the mountain and been there for so long, Matt's maybe she has to go outside the sport for the kind of help that she's going to need to inspire her to win number 24. I completely agree. I mean, she already went outside the sport in uh, the uh, inspiration for her outfit during Australian Open. She's based that on Lojo. True. Uh, and maybe she needs to hit less tennis balls and 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 work on some speed, uh, work on some some overall strength, and 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 somehow become again uh, a better athlete. Uh, which is why she was so dominant ten years ago. Uh, and uh, maybe that doesn't come by practicing like normal tennis players. Maybe she needs inspiration from, but I would think in today's, today's science and in, in sports, I would think there is a way for her to, to improve her movement because the, the fact is that Roger Federer came back in 2017 and he looked like he was moving as well as ever. And Serena Williams moved better this year at the Australian Open than she has for the last three or four years. Question is, is it enough that she have to move even better than that? And how does she get there? I think the inspiration of Tom Brady uh, and, and of course, Roger Federer uh, and must help somebody like Serena big time. How much does she care about the record? Does she or do we care more than she does? Because at the end of the Australian Open, I don't know. She wasn't really hinting at the fact that she was disappointed that she didn't break or tie the record of Margaret Court. She was just disappointed she lost. So I'm not sure what it takes. Uh, is it a long-term goal of winning another slam or is it, is it short-term uh, in terms of trying new things out? Bryson DeChambeau, he has shown us that no one would ever think of, of uh, doing what he's done. And he's now taken the, the golf world by storm and he's doing things that's never been done before by any golfer. So what is that that Serena can do? That's the interesting. So yeah, I like it. Bryson DeChambeau definitely marching to the beat of his own drum, no question about it. Johnny, when Mats and I did a presentation recently with Gil Reyes, we talked about the fact that a lot of the equipment that Gil and Andre Agassi had developed, the, 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 the built machinery, was they were helped out by Carl Lewis. So there's another inspiration where they were going to an Olympic sprinter. Now, I know that when you were playing and you were trying to rise to the level that, that, that Matt's played in and, and, and get into that, that, you know, that top 100 and then keep going, you tried different things. What were some of the training regiments that you took on that were effective that maybe you wouldn't have come across otherwise? Well, I think um, what I was doing back then, um, and, and it's so much different now, uh, was some, you know, working with some weights, but they were free weights and things like that, that would always, you know, get you nervous. Were you going to bulk up too much or were you going to get injured? I think the, the stuff that the players do now with, um, with the bands and the equipment that for strength training, that isn't the, the, you know, it's more core work, um, I think is really, uh, progressed over the years. And I think that that's where players now are, getting their, you know, getting tone and getting their core strengthened. And I think their, you know, the fitness level is obviously 
you know, off the charts compared to what it used to be. I mean, players are just, the training is just so much better and the knowledge in the, in the training is so much better. And I think that that's what we see in all sports. And that's why, you know, when you look at, I go back to, to uh, Federer and, um, you know, he's been out there, you know, he's 39 years old and he's just risen to the occasion with, with the new crop that keeps coming in because in all of these sports at the highest levels, the whole key to, to maintain and stay at the, at the highest level is to keep improving because everyone behind you is, is continuing to get better. So the guys at the top, you know, they, they have a huge job to, to, to try to stay there. And I think, I think it, it all comes down to, to improvement and, and continuing to get better because if you're not getting better, the guys right behind you are going to pass you real fast. Um, and so that, that, that really is what, what, you know, part of the training and part of the fitness goes into that and making sure that you're at the be- in the best physical condition that you can be in. Okay, so that's part of it, Mass, without question. And, and again, getting back to some of the comments that Gil Reyes made, a lot of what Gil talked about from a strengthening perspective was an area of your game. I, I venture to say that you were to some extent born with it, but it's that, but it's between the years. It's when you're playing Andre Agassi at the French open and you go into that fifth set and suddenly a match that is two sets all becomes six love in the fifth set. There's something going on between the ears there in one of these marathons. But nowadays, I mean, these athletes have got to be trained for that. And we saw a situation in the U.S. Open where Sasha Zverev and, and Dominic Team. it was almost like the end of a Rocky fight where it was the guy that was still going to barely be standing at the end was the guy that was going to hoist the trophy. So what were you doing and what were you thinking about from a fitness perspective that then gave you the mental toughness to be able to outlast all these guys? You know, I, yeah, I did, uh, I started in um, uh, 1987 and uh, started doing completely different training off. We started uh, practicing boxing. We did, Uh, we were doing uh, 100 yard sprints. We were uh, high jumping. Um, We were doing a lot of things that I would have never, ever considered doing before that because it was so sort of stuck in go for a long run if you get tired do some sit-ups to get some core strength do push-ups so I think that she or in general I think you have to break away from what everybody else is doing uh and and that's what I did and I I didn't know if it was going to make me a better tennis player it just made me a better athlete so I had more options to when I wasn't playing well I had options to come to the net because I could jump a little higher I could rely on my serve a little bit more because I could serve a little bit harder. So uh, I think that I was um, maybe not as consistent when I was number one in the world, but my highest level was much higher than it had been before. And I think with Serena, because I still like to kind of go to that topic, I remember interviewing Petra Kvitova, uh, Czech Republic uh, uh, two-time Grand Slam champion. And she told me once, that she prefers to have a chance to win any slam she enters, also knowing if she has a bad day, she might not win a round. So she was rather looking at how good am I when I'm playing at my absolute best, because that way I can win slams. And then, of course, when you risk everything to play like that, you can lose to anyone. And I feel like Serena, she's, we've been looking for consistency, and she's more consistent 
But is consistency going to take her to the next slam or is consistency just going to take her to the quarters and the semis and maybe final? I think it's time for her to kind of close her eyes a little bit and, and, and start ripping the ball and being more um, determined to play tennis on her terms, just the way that Roger Federer changed in 2017 and said, hey, I can't rally with you, Rafa or Novak, so... What are we going to do? We're not going to rally that much. I'm going to take the racket out of your hand. I think Serena has now gotten to the point when she's, she's proven herself. I'm good enough to play with these girls. If I have a great day, I need to beat the other women. We've seen the game evolve, Johnny, so much. And let's close out with this topic, guys, because if the question is, what can Serena do to turn back the hands of time, which obviously can't happen, but what can be done in the sport of tennis to take away the advantages that the top players have had all these years? Is it going to be a, a, a revisit to net play in singles? Are players going to have to start to move forward again? We saw Roger do that uh, in 2017. We, we, we talked about his comeback, and we saw him come into the net a lot against Rafael Nadal. Is that something that we're going to see more players having no choice but to do? I think it'll depend on the surface. For sure. I do think that on hard courts, um, you know, people need to try all different, you know, strategies to win. And if they're not winning from the baseline, then, um, you know, maybe they'll figure out a way to, 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 you know, change the pace, get to net and use their, but you got to be a good athlete up there because the way these, these gals hit the ball, it's uh, you're going to get passed and it's going to be tough. But um, I think a super athlete, um, could, could do it if they figured out, you know, how to, how to, you know, play from the back and get to the net and, and work their way in. You got to have a really good slice. Um, but it, 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 it seems to me that it's just the, the way that the, these, these athletes are hitting these ground strokes today. It's really tough boy, you, you know, to, to come up to the net. I mean, they're just ripping the ball from both sides and uh, makes it really, really hard. Uh, it's so, I don't know, Andy, that's a, t- that's a tough one. Matt, I'm not just necessarily alluding to the women's game. So it sounds like Johnny was kind of answering it with respect to that. But what about O'Reilly Opelka? What about the guys that are, that are these monster guys that can't necessarily hang from the ground with all the technological advances? Is that ever going to come back to become advantageous to the serve and volley? You know, I think it's very interesting that that we we touched on Daniel Medvedev being yeah. the second player, the second player in the world. The way Medvedev plays at this particular moment, I don't care how good he becomes at the game he's playing right now, he will never be better than Roger, Rafa, or Novak, even if he's coming four, five, ten years later. I can see somebody like a Tsitsipas or Denis Shapovalov or Riley Opelka, they're bringing something different to the court. And if they can perfect, if Denis Shapovalov can perfect the kind of tennis he's trying to play, which is really hard to do, but if he can, then I can see that you're taking the game to the next level. But I think somebody like Sasha Zverev or Daniel Medvedev, it doesn't matter how good they become. If they hang back there and try and play that kind of tennis, then then tennis is is, is not going to improve over the next 10 years because you can't get better than Novak and Rafa from the baseline. So I actually believe you, are, uh, you have a pointer, Andy. I would like to see these guys 
take bigger rips at the ball, come forwards, play sort of a more of a violent style of tennis, go for second serves way more often. If the te- game of tennis is going to improve on the men's side, I don't see any way of hanging back at the baseline and think you're going to be better than Novak Djokovic from the baseline because I don't think that player will ever come about. So uh, it's tough to come to the net. I 100% agree, but but they're good athletes. Stefano Tsitsipas, what an unbelievable athlete. So if he can improve his backhand a little bit, maybe there's a way that he can physically take the game of tennis to the next level. But staying from the baseline, I think they're backtracking and taking steps uh, uh, further away from uh, Roger and Rafa Novak's highest level. I'll close with this. The guy that you're describing, which is why it's so disappointing not to see him do more, which is could, which is the guy that could have taken this whole thing to the next level, and maybe he still will, and that's Nick Kyrgios. And as we all know, that guy is as freaky as they come. That guy does more unique things on the court than anybody that we've ever seen. He's his own worst enemy. He's must-see TV, as David Egg said earlier in the show. Nick Kyrgios is box office, no doubt about it. And if he was able to get it together and become as much of a winning player as he is a showman, then we would have the next in the generation uh, or the next in the evolution of the sport of tennis. He's Mads Vlander, seven-time major champion, former number one in the world, and Johnny Levine, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American. I'm Andy Zoden. We're kickserveradio.com. Thank you, David Eggers, for joining us because we are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network and damn proud of it. And we'll be back soon. Hopefully you guys will be too.